I'd ask that you now uh, join me in taking your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Today, Lord willing, as we finish out this chapter, chapter 17, reading a larger portion than we have recently, verses 20 to 37. We're reading a portion that will sound a lot like a few other portions that we're aware of, uh, both in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel, that are typically known as the Olivet Discourse. There, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, where he prophesies of two things, it seems, close together in one picture, both the the judgment and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and also the ultimate judgment at that final day when Christ will return in glory. Well, that uh, Olivet Discourse is still yet to come in Luke's Gospel. What we're reading today has been known by some as Luke's Little Apocalypse, uh, because this also likewise speaks about things concerning the end. It speaks about that last day when Christ will be revealed, we find, uh, in verse 30, the day when the Son of Man is revealed. We're learning today about the coming of the kingdom, both by examining a question from the Pharisees and also teaching to the disciples. And this is a difficult passage. I won't mince words uh, with that. It's difficult uh, to understand in some places, and it's difficult in other places to hear. And yet, as difficult as it may be, this is God's good word for his people. He knows what we're studying. He knows that we're together. Uh, he knows what we will be reading every week as we gather in this church and in this place. Uh, and this is the word he has for us. And so difficult as it may be, I'd ask that you would, together with me, uh, we'll need to think hard through some of this and to study together uh, but this is God's good word for his people, and I pray that you would receive it uh, just as, uh, as I've been studying it this week and pray that we together uh, would grow in an appreciation of our Lord and Savior because of what we read together today. Now, before we uh, read this passage, I'm going to pray again, and we'll seek the Lord's blessing on our study together. Let's pray. Oh, gracious and righteous Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given us. We pray that by your Holy Spirit you would give us eyes to see and, and ears to hear and hearts to believe all that you have told us about Jesus Christ, about his coming at first and his coming again. Oh Lord, help us to look forward to that day. Help us to be prepared for it, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 17, beginning to read in verse 20 and reading through the end in verse 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. They said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let us, uh, may he add a blessing uh, as we study it uh, together today. Excuse me. Uh, Eleven years ago, uh, almost uh, to the day, eleven years ago this past week, uh, in the city of Port-au-Prince in Haiti, there was a magnitude 7.0 earthquake uh, that shook the ground and rattled that city. The center of the quake hit about 25 miles west of Port-au-Prince, and it destroyed several villages almost completely on its way to the capital city. Uh, It was one of the worst natural disasters recorded in modern history. It demolished homes and government buildings. It tore apart houses uh, and schools and cathedrals. It displaced more than a million people. It completely ruined what little infrastructure already existed in Haiti. The actual count, the the real death toll is disputed, but somewhere between 200 and 300,000 people lost their lives, whether in the immediate earthquake or in the aftermath. And a full year after that shock, only 5% of the rubble had been able to be cleared away. Now there is, of course, nothing that can stop an earthquake. But when something like that happens, when there is a natural disaster, an earthquake or or a hurricane or, or some other thing like this, people always lament that things could have been different if only they had been prepared. But how much time is enough to prepare for something like that? The best early warning systems for earthquakes in the world can give you maybe 30 seconds of warning, depending on where you are and where the epicenter is and whether the sensors are all working correctly and and whether you're able to see the message. 30 seconds, maybe. Perhaps enough time to turn off your utilities. Perhaps enough time to hide under some furniture. Two years, actually, uh, before the earthquake in Haiti, Caribbean geologists presented a study that suggested that the fault line that runs directly beneath Port-au-Prince was due for a major event. They predicted, perhaps, a worst-case scenario of up to a magnitude 7.2 earthquake, and they weren't very far off. But how much time is enough to prepare for something like that? Could you move the capital city of a very poor country in two years? Could you save your family in 30 seconds? Could you be converted to faith in Jesus Christ in the twinkling of an eye? Well, this passage is about the need for all of us to be prepared. There is a day coming 
that the scripture has always told about. It's a day that the prophets of old called a day of darkness and gloom, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. It's the day that Christ foretold that he would return in the glory of his Father to judge the nations. It is the day that John told about. There he said that every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the earth will wail account of him. It is the day that the Son of Man will be revealed. The day that the wheat will be separated from the chaff and the goats will be separated from the sheep. The day that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And one of the most important things we can know is how to prepare for that day. Now if we are to know how to prepare, we need to know something about God's kingdom and we need to know something about Christ's judgment. Those are the two avenues that we'll take in looking at this passage today. Something about God's kingdom and something about Christ's judgment. Now the passage begins with a question about God's kingdom, but but a question about the timing of God's kingdom. This was the issue on the Pharisees' mind. When is it that the kingdom of God will come? Now we, we get pretty critical, we get pretty down on the Pharisees when we read the Gospels, but there's no indication here actually uh, that this was one of those traps they were trying to lay for Jesus that he might snare himself with his words. It, it doesn't seem that there's any malice in this question. Actually, this is the question that every Jew wanted the answer to. There was all sorts of speculation. There there was all sorts of longing and and looking forward to the coming of God's kingdom. And everybody wanted to know, every Jew wanted to know, when will God restore rule and authority to the kingdom of Israel? It was also the, the kind of thing that Jesus seemed to talk about all the time. Everywhere he went, he was always telling parables about mustard seeds and, and nets gathering fish and, and about hidden treasures. Jesus was always talking about what the kingdom was like and and how you got into it and how it was that you could live as a citizen of God's kingdom. So so in a sense, Jesus came scratching where every Jew was already itching. It was only a matter of time that, that people would come to him, even those who had been antagonistic to his ministry, they would come to him and say, well, when is it going to happen? How will we know when is God's kingdom coming back? Now, their assumption, of course, was that when it came back, they would see it. They would all recognize it. They know how things go. When there's a, when there's a change of regime, when, when there is some wonderful thing, like God restoring his kingdom to his chosen people, there would be signs to see. There would be fanfare and pomp and circumstance and, and ceremony. And we know about that. Just this week, we we saw in our own nation the inauguration of a new uh, presidential administration. And we know in our own American way the signs that mark the transition of power. There's the oath at the Capitol building. There are the bells ringing from uh, the university tower. In our American way, we we have our our celebrity performances, and we have our optimistic poems, and we have our our, our religiously uh, sort of nondescript prayers that are, that are full of political language. We know exactly what to look for when there's a change in power. And the Jews thought they would know what to look for when there was a change of power, when there was a new kingdom in town. And maybe they were looking for different things. Maybe they were looking for the moon to be turned to blood, or, or a 
another cloud of smoke and fire to descend upon the temple. Maybe they were waiting for some heavenly trumpet to sound and to announce the new Davidic king who would come and get rid of those Roman occupiers. They were looking for something. But whatever it was they were waiting for, they were convinced that it would be unmistakable, that they would see it, that they would recognize it. And so their only question is when? How soon? When can we expect this? And Jesus corrects them. He doesn't even speak about when, because they're looking for the wrong thing. God's kingdom wasn't going to come in, in a kind of observable outward glory. It wouldn't come in the way that every Jew thought they'd be able to recognize it. There, there wouldn't be uh, crowds flocking to see God's armies riding over the Mount of Olives to, to destroy the Romans and kick them out and restore his kingdom like that. Jesus says the kingdom is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of God is in the midst of you? Many people think that Jesus meant that it's an inside thing, an internal thing, that the kingdom of God is inside of you. There's some scriptural warrant for that. Romans 14, Paul says that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and joy and, and peace in the Lord. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Lord. It's, it's characterized by a heart attitude that, uh, that fills God's people, that there is an internal reality to the kingdom of God. The problem is that in the Gospels, Jesus always speaks of people entering the kingdom and never of the kingdom entering people. The, the gospel, the, the gospels tell us that God's kingdom is, is his rule over humanity. As, uh, as another scholar, Graham Goldsworthy, has said, uh, God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. His authority is, is, is the idea here, and it's his rule over humanity, and we come under that rule through repentance of our sins and faith in the anointed king. And there were some Pharisees even in Jesus' day, who, uh, who trusted in the anointed king, who came to faith in Jesus Christ and who entered into God's kingdom. But by and large, the Pharisees are those who are uh, the ones who flatly reject God's kingdom rule. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. So is it likely, we, we ought to ask ourselves, is it likely that when the Pharisees asked Jesus about the kingdom of God that he turned to them and said, you know, don't worry about looking for the kingdom because it's already deep inside your legalistic hearts. Look inside. Turn inward and, and find the kingdom there. Is it likely that that is what Jesus was saying to these who had been antagonistic to his ministry? No, no, it's, it's really not actually. So what Jesus is saying, not that the kingdom is in their hearts, but he's saying that the kingdom is already there, it's already present, it's already present in their midst, in himself. When he said the kingdom is in your midst, he meant that it was there in front of them, because the kingdom is present in God's king. It was God's king, Jesus, who was speaking these words to them. 
There had been an inauguration ceremony already. It was the day that Jesus was baptized. And as he came up from the waters, the, the heavens opened and the voice declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. There had already been sign after sign after sign of all the Holy Spirit's power through Jesus to change lives and to drive out sins. Jesus had already proclaimed his kingdom agenda when he went into Nazareth and, and read the scroll of Isaiah and said that the, the day of the Lord is now fulfilled in him. So the kingdom has already come. It was already present. It was already before their eyes. And yet many overlooked and ignored the kingdom because they were looking for the wrong thing. And this is the first thing we need to understand about God's kingdom in this passage. It is that many in Jesus' day overlooked the kingdom that was already in their midst. We also need to understand that there is coming a day when Christ will return with a kingdom that is unmissable. A kingdom that is unmissable. Notice the shift in verse 22. Jesus turns from speaking to the Pharisees to speaking to his disciples. He turns from talking about what is already to what will be in the future. He says the days are coming. Not yet, but the days are coming. When the Son of Man will not be with them. And here he is, he tells us, going up to be rejected. He's going with his disciples. Remember the trajectory of Luke's gospel. Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem where he will go up and he will be handed over and he will be put to death and he will raise again on the third day. He's going up with his disciples where he will suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And after that rejection, his disciples, he says, will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and they will not see it. They will long for something that seems like the good old days when they were going around with Jesus, when they could see him, when they could hear him, when he was with them and teaching and leading and performing miracles right before their eyes. They'll long for something like that, the days that they had God's king reigning among them and their desires will go unfulfilled. Because following the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the church will enter a time of waiting and a time of preparation. It will be a time of waiting for God's promises, and it will be a time of preparing for Christ to return. Now this phrase, the, the days of the Son of Man, that's not what we expect to see. It's a strange construction, the days of the Son of Man, plural. And so... Not quite sure what to make of that, but it's helpful if you compare it to the parallels that we find also in this passage. There in verse 22, you'll desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you won't see it. Uh, but that's the same as the day of, Son of, Man, of the Son of Man in verse 24. Singular, the day, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Singular. And it's the same as verse 26. Verse 26, where we read that, uh, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days, again plural, of the Son of Man. And then finally, verse 30, it's the same as the day when it says the Son of Man will be revealed. These so are all pointing to the same time, the same moment. It is the time that Christ says was yet to come for his disciples. But it helps us to understand the dual nature 
of Christ's kingdom. You're probably already familiar with this terminology, but, but many scholars have uh, told us and, and teach that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. That is, that in Christ, in his first advent, in his coming, it was inaugurated, but it is not yet consummated, that it has been established already, but it has not yet been fulfilled. And between those two realities, the church lives in a state of longing and looking and waiting and expecting. But Christ tells us that when he comes to bring his kingdom into fullness, he will not come in the same way that he entered our world at the first. How did he come in at first to bring in his inaugurated kingdom? Well, he came in in quietness. We just celebrated Christmas not too long ago, and at Christmas when we think about the the incarnation, we celebrate the, the humility of Christ. That as he came and he lived as as a poor man, really, as as a pauper, living and and being born into a manger. That he came in with no form or majesty that we should see him or or desire him. That he, he came in to establish a kingdom that was overlooked. He came as a man of sorrows. He came to suffer and be rejected by his generation. When Christ came first, he came to be despised and he was unnoticed. But when he returns, he will come with a kingdom that is unmissable. Notice how he tells the Pharisees that that people will not be able to say the kingdom's over there or the kingdom's over here. They won't be able to say it because the inaugurated inaugurated kingdom, excuse me, was overlooked, that they didn't see it, that it was already right here. And it wasn't out there. It was already in Christ and nobody saw it. But he turns and he assures his disciples that on the day of the Son of Man, nobody will need to say it's over there or it's over here. That sort of teaching, that sort of pointing in a particular direction will be completely unnecessary because as one strike of lightning illuminates the entire sky, so Jesus says it will be when he returns. It will be unmissable. He will come in unmistakable power and undeniable glory. And so we won't need news reports. We won't need mass media conglomerates to get the word out. We won't need to go back and and study obscure ancient texts and eyewitnesses to see if maybe it's already happened and maybe we all missed it. We won't need to consult modern-day prophetic tour guides to help us crack the code in the pages of the Scripture and figure out when it might happen. At Jesus' first coming, many overlooked the kingdom that was in their midst. But when he returns, he will bring a kingdom that is unmissable. He'll come on the clouds of heaven, says the scriptures. He'll come with the glory of the Father, says the scriptures. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the peoples of the earth will wail on account of him. This isn't something that happens in an obscure corner of Palestine when maybe just a few people saw it and reported it and we all maybe missed it. This is something that no one will miss when he returns. And dear friends, because this is true, we need to be ready. Because the scripture tells us that when Christ returns in glory, he will also return in judgment. And on the day of Christ's judgment, many will be unprepared. 
Those are our two points today. That when Christ returns, he'll bring a kingdom that is unmissable. And secondly, when Christ returns in judgment, many will be unprepared. On the day when the Son of Man is revealed, he says that it will be just like it was when the wrath of God destroyed sinners in the days of Noah and Lot. Now you can go back and you can read the accounts. In, in both of those places in Genesis, the scripture records the wickedness that the Lord saw on the earth when he looked down and saw the hearts of man. We read in Genesis 13, 13, that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Likewise, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we read that in Noah's day, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Can you imagine what it is to live in a society and a culture like that? There are rough neighborhoods in every major city in the world. There have been vile and monstrous regimes that have arisen throughout human history, but I bet that if you scratch below the surface of any of those, you will find some shred of, of humanity, some shred of compassion, some shred of virtue, maybe even buried under all the violence and all the hatred and malice. There'll be, there'll be something redeemable under there. Not so in Noah's day. Living in his day was like living on a hell on earth. Only evil continually. And that makes it all the more surprising when you hear the description that Jesus uses of the kinds of things that left these people unprepared. We hear Noah, and we hear Sodom and Gomorrah, and we expect to hear terrible, vile sins where, where God will say it will be like on the days of Noah where people were murdering one another and killing everybody and there was rape happening in the streets and it was the worst thing you can imagine. That's not what he says. It will be as in the days of Noah. It will be as in the days of Lot. And what were they doing? They're marrying. They're being given in marriage. They're eating. They're drinking, they're, they're building, they're planting, they're buying, they're selling. They're so full of the stuff of everyday life that they are completely unprepared. They are completely indifferent to the warnings that God has been giving to them. It'll be like those hundred years that Noah spent constructing the ark. Maybe just him and his sons. Maybe, maybe they were helping him. And, and what was happening at that time? Well, not much. His neighbors, maybe, were going around and they were scoffing. <laughs> and they were laughing. Can you believe this guy? He thinks something's going to happen. He's getting ready for something. Glad we're not wasting our time like this one. Christ says that when he returns, it will be like, like it was for Lot, perhaps for those two men who were betrothed to his daughters. And they were so much a part of the culture in which they lived, the, the sins of their culture, that when, when Lot tried to speak sense to them, even though every last man was outside the door, had been struck with blindness because of the angels that were inside, dragging Lot and his family out of the city, were told that Lot tried to speak sense to them, and they thought he was joking. Come on, this guy, get a load of him. Fire and sulfur, right? Oh, man. What were they full of? 
What was the sin of these people? Noah entered the ark, and Lot went out from Sodom, and flood and fire destroyed them all. That's the phrase that's repeated. Destroyed them all. What was their sin? What left them unprepared for the day of the Lord? It was their terrible, intractable indifference to the things of God. Simply because they had no time. They had, they had no interest in taking spiritual things seriously. That's why they were swept away. That was part of the wickedness of their hearts. And Jesus says that on the day when the Son of Man is revealed, it'll be just like that. A great mass of humanity swept away because they are utterly, completely unconcerned with the judgment that is coming. Indifferent or not, that day is coming. And so Christ tells us to be ready. He tells us to prepare by setting our heart's desire, by setting our hope, not on the things of this world, but on the promises of his kingdom. Verse 31 there, he uses language of escaping an invading army to show us how we ought to set our priorities straight. In this day and age, if you you looked out over the horizon and you saw a, a band of marauders galloping over the horizon toward your village. That was not the time to go and root around in your bedroom and in your closet for the trinkets, for the pictures that you hoped you could save. If you were already outside of your house, it was foolish to return inside. If you were in the field, it was useless to go back into your home. All the goods that you had spent your life accumulating would be worthless if you lost your life trying to save them. And again, Jesus is calling us not to be so devoted to the things of this world that are passing away that we are indifferent to the gospel call of faith and repentance. Remember Lot's wife, he says. It's one of the shortest, one of the saddest verses anywhere in the Bible. Remember Lot's wife. Leon Morris says that Lot's wife came as close to deliverance without achieving it as was possible. She was brought out of the city. She was set on the way to salvation. She was told exactly where to go. But because she longed for the life that this world could offer her, she couldn't help but take one more mournful look at what the Lord was leading her away from. It didn't matter that it was all burning. It didn't matter that God's judgment was falling on every last bit of it of her former life. She still longed to be where her things were. Like Demas that Paul writes about. In love with this present world has abandoned me, he says. Lot's wife longed to be with the things of this world and not where the Lord was leading her. And we're called to get ready for that day. Dear friends, remember Lot's wife. Don't be like those believers who publicly talk about how God has saved them and then spend all of their private moments nursing warm regard and, and, and fine fantasies about all the sins of their former life that they were called away from. Remember Lot's wife. Beware the snare of spending all your life doing nothing but acquiring 
and maintaining and protecting your possessions. Beware the temptation to spend all your energy on pursuits that leave you with absolutely no interest in seeking the Lord in prayer. Beware that slow and steady downward slide that begins with a public profession of faith that sounds pretty good. And it ends in a tepid, lifeless, functional atheism. Beware the temptation that says that you can play make-believe with Christian faith. And then at the last, you can escape Christ's judgment by outward appearance. When Christ returns in glory, there will be a perfect separation. He says that there will be two people in one bed. There will be two women at a single mill, and one will be taken and the other will be left. That means that the division that Christ uh, will make when he returns in glory is not going to be according to economic status or, or ethnic background or political affiliation or any of the things that we like to use to compartmentalize humanity. When Christ returns, there will be only two buckets. He will return for deliverance and he will return for judgment and he will separate all peoples of the earth into two categories, citizens of his kingdom or enemies of his throne. And there will be no third option. There will be no checkbox for, I'm sorry, I'm religiously unaffiliated. One will be taken and the other one left. It's a puzzle. Maybe. Maybe one will be swept away by God's judgment. The other will be left in his kingdom. Maybe flip-flopped. Maybe, maybe one will be gathered to the Savior. The other one will be left for judgment and torment. But either way, the message is the same. That there will be a perfect division when Christ returns in glory. And so the call is to be ready now. The call is to come to the Lord and to be brought into his kingdom through faith and repentance before the day of his judgment. The call for God's people is to gather as many as are willing to come with us. To proclaim the gospel, the message of the kingdom, far and wide, wherever the Lord will take us, to anyone who will hear. To spread the gospel with a sense of urgency. To look at every one of our neighbors, every one of our family members, and realize there are only two categories. That's the call, to be ready and to help others to be ready. The call for God's people is to live lives that are unencumbered by idolatry to worldly possessions. The call is rather to lose anything than lose our longing for Christ and His coming. Dear friends, the day is coming when Christ's overlooked kingdom will be unmissable. And when He returns in glory, many will be unprepared. Today is the day to get ready. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your kindness to warn and to caution, to call us to be prepared and ready. Oh Lord, we thank you for the Savior you sent into the world, despised and rejected, our sin laid upon him, and yet by faith and repentance you have made us members and citizens of your kingdom. 
awaiting the glorious return when you, O Lord, will bring deliverance for your people. But, oh, we pray that you would give us a sense of urgency, that we would be ready, that we would call others to be ready, that we would continue to look and long for that day that you have promised. Even so, O Lord, we pray, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, in his name. Amen.